Well, let's see where we are. There we go. Okay, so here's our map. And if you remember, uh, last week we made it from, we made it all the way uh, from Galatia up through Asia to Macedonia, to Philippi. It was a long way. And God said, you know, Paul, you know, I don't want you to speak the word to anyone in Asia. I've got a place for you to go. And Paul kept going and going, not knowing where he was going to end up. And finally, they get to the end of Asia, all the way to Troas. And uh, Paul has a dream of a Macedonian man saying, come and help us. And Paul realizes that God is sending him to the Roman province of Macedonia, which is northern Greece. And they, they end up in Philippi ministering. But they're not done in Macedonia. They're still in the place where God had intentionally sent them and uh, where he had finally opened up a door for the gospel. So this, these passages in Thessalonica and Berea both take place still in Macedonia. I know the city names here are a bit too small for you to make out. But if you look uh, in Macedonia, you see Philippi is kind of the city furthest to the right or to the east here. Thessalonica and Berea are where it starts to turn down uh, to the south. And, uh, and then as you keep going south, you run into Athens and Corinth and all those sorts of places. Those are next on our journey. But right now, we're going to be in Thessalonica and Berea. Even if you can't see the words, you can see the green spot on the screen. It's gone now. I'm very sorry, but we're going to keep going. Uh, I bring this up again because you know, we're really in this place where God has specially called Paul and his companions to share the gospel. And last week, we saw that in some ways they were much less successful than they anticipated. You know, in, in the first missionary journey, they went from city to city, and everyone would come out, and the whole city would be talking about it, and there'd be huge churches that they'd leave behind. And they get to Philippi, and the church that they leave consists of certainly more than just we hear about in the story, but we, we only hear about individuals in the story. You hear about Lydia, uh, a merchant woman who deals in purple clothing, purple cloth, and she, outside the city at a river, meets Jesus. And she follows him. And then there's a, a slave girl in the marketplace who is possessed by a demon and is able to tell fortunes. And Paul casts the demon out of that girl and she is set free. We don't actually find out what happens to her. But I think that the implication is probably the only place she had left to go was to the Christians, was to Paul and his friends. And then we get to the Philippian jailer, the guy who has locked Paul and Silas in this horribly torturous position and who is making sure that they've, you know, they don't get out, they don't get away. And yet God, that's, these are the people that God sent Paul and his companions all the way across Turkey to share the gospel with. And now what's going to happen in Thessalonica and in Berea? Uh, so... We get to Thessalonica. Now, as we get to Thessalonica, I actually have a question for you. We're going to come out of the past and into the present here for just a moment. If you were to go up to somebody on the street and say, what would make God be happy with you? What would make God love you or care for you or take you to heaven when you die? What, what would commend you to God? What are the answers you think you might get? This question and answer. Guys, the slides already didn't work. You know, you got to help me out here, okay? Because they try to be good, right? God will love me because I'm trying really hard to be good. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's a lot easier to love good people than bad people. Diane? Being kind and loving. 
Yeah, being kind and loving, right? Same idea. What else? Feed the hungry, do good deeds, right? Don't just like not do bad things, but actually do good things. Be kind and loving, be a good person, do good deeds. How about, well, who does God think he is anyway? Can a good God really, you know, not love a person like me? I love people like me all the time, right? So wouldn't they say, I just deserve it? It doesn't even matter necessarily how good or bad I am. I just deserve God's love and care and concern for me. I bet you'd hear that. I, I bet most people wouldn't say it that way. It doesn't matter how bad I am. God just has to love me. But they, you would hear somebody say like, well, if God's good, he'll just love me. We rely on God's goodness in that sense. Anything else? Gosh. I, no, I think those are pretty good. And I think that's some of the sorts of things that we might hear. But how is it that we are really made right with God? How do we become God's children and God's friends? Remember? Believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus right? uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is actually the passage I preached out of for Joshua's uh, ordination service last week. But it says this in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to the dying. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If we might rephrase that, I think part of what Paul is saying here is, you could never make this up. If we were trying to figure out how to be made right with God, no one would have said God's only son has to become a human being just like you and me, and he needs to live in an obscure part of the world and die a criminal's death on a cross, the most humiliating death anyone could have given him at the time, most painful death anyone could have given him at the time. He has to be in the grave and on the third day rise again from the dead. This is such a fantastic series of events. And fantastic, not just in the sense of wow, but fantastic in the sense of huh? That no one could make this sort of thing up. We would never know how to be right with God if we were on our own to figure it out. Does that make sense? Do we agree with that this morning? Could we figure out on our own how to please God? I don't think so, because we would come up with the natural sorts of explanations. I need to be a good person. I need to do the religious things, right? Whatever God set out, you know, I, I need to do those things. I need to, you know, uh, uh, be better than average, right? Isn't that, I love that one, where people are like, well, I'm a good person. It's like, well, compared to who? Well, like some of the bad people in the world, right? I guess, because I know I don't keep all of the rules, right? I break rules all the time. Anyone else out there break rules, you know, more often than you'd care to admit? This is where you have to be honest and raise your hand, even if you don't want to admit it. Okay, we're all, this is a safe place. Just do it. Yeah, we, we all do this. So we say, well, I'm a good person, but good compared to what? On whose accounting? Like, if it's good on my own accounting, well, of course I'm good on my own accounting. Very few of us wander around going, wow, I'm really a terrible person. 
right? We, we try and convince ourselves, I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty decent person. You know, I'm better than that guy. That's where we always go in the end, isn't it? I'm better than that person across the street. I'm better than my neighbor. Like, my neighbor's a bad neighbor, but I'm a great neighbor, right? Not realizing that, you know, the Hatfields aren't just living in isolation and the McCoys come and get them. They work together to have the feud, don't they? We love looking around and comparing ourselves to others because that's the only way in which we can say, I'm a good person. Because if we measure ourselves against the law, we're not as good as we'd like to think we are. None of these explanations are going to work out, but they are so tempting to believe. There's something in us that wants to run to them. So how are we going to find out the way of salvation? How are we going to find out what God wants from us unless he speaks Unless he speaks. And how does God speak to us? Through the Bible. Yeah, I mean, you went to the big one first, didn't you? Through the Bible. Let's, and let's talk about the Bible for just for a minute. Because that's where the passage leads us this morning. I know that this isn't the first Read Your Bible sermon that you've ever had from me. Uh, but I, I do want to tell you something about this. You don't get them from me because I really wish that everyone did this, or I really am upset and think that everyone needs to do this more. It's because as we encounter God's word, it keeps telling us, you need to be here. You need to keep reading this. You notice uh, my practice is usually to preach straight through books. I just pick a book of the Bible. We start at the beginning, and like eight years later, we get to the end. And part of the reason I do this is because the word of God always speaks to us, wherever we are whatever is happening in our lives. And if I was picking passages on my own, I'd probably preach in the same three or four things over and over and over again. But if I ask, you know, if I go through books and say, well, what's this passage about? What's this passage about? What's this passage about? I will eventually preach to you the whole counsel of God. This is what God has for us this morning. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica And there was a Jewish synagogue there. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul wanted to convince the people, persuade the people in Thessalonica that they needed to know Jesus. And the way he went about it was to start with the scriptures. There are a couple of reasons he did this. First of all, the people he was speaking to were people of the book. They were people who valued and treasured the scripture and received them as authoritative. So it made sense. If Paul just came in and he said, I have a feeling in my gut that we need to be followers of Jesus Christ, everyone would have said, yeah, I got lots of feelings. Right now I'm hungry. You know, later on today I'll be tired. Some of us are already there. I have lots of feelings. But my feelings are not authoritative. As a matter of fact, sometimes I know when those feelings come along, I need to not live according to them. I have this conversation as a parent all the time. If you do what your anger tells you to do, you will rarely, if ever, do good things. Man, anger is a tough feeling, isn't it? And when we act in anger, we almost always regret what we said and what we did later. Feelings are pretty changeable too, aren't they? Uh, I don't know about you, but my spiritual feelings change all the time. 
all the time. There are days where, oh, God is so amazing and he's so great. And there are days where I'm like, you know, I don't really like God very much today because my life is hard and I don't think it should be. And there are days when I say, I feel so close to God. And there are days when I say, I feel so far away from God. Do your feelings change from day to day like mine? from week to week, from moment to moment? Do you want to rely on your feelings as the authoritative statement of who God is, how much he loves you, and what he wants to do in your life? I'm telling you, your feelings will let you down. Not because they're bad or because they're wrong, but because they weren't designed to carry that weight. Our feelings are reactive, aren't they? They respond to whatever situation we find ourselves in. Our situation is constantly changing, and so our feelings are constantly changing too. But there's something that's different about the Word of God. The Word of God doesn't change from moment to moment and from day to day. That doesn't mean it's always equally easy to understand or to take in. But it does mean that if I want a yardstick against which to measure my life, my feelings will let me down. But the word of God will every day say there are 36 inches in a yard. Every day, 12 inches in a foot. 5,280 feet in a mile. Isn't the imperial system really wonderful? So much easier to remember 5,280 feet to a mile than 1,000 meters to a kilometer. I don't know, who came up with this stuff? That's unimportant, let's move on. the word of God doesn't change. And so it has an authority that's different from the rest of the things that I look to in my life for guidance and for direction. But the word of God doesn't just have an authority I can trust. It has power. Do you notice what happens in, uh, in Thessalonica? It says that Paul went into the synagogue on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. He says, here is the message none of us would have thought up. But let me show you how scripture has always pointed toward this. You know, Jesus came along and he did all of these things. And at first we thought, what's going on? And then we looked at the scriptures and we said, oh, Oh, now I understand. It was always pointing forward to what Jesus would do for us. It was always, you know, the law was actually not about be good, be so good that God will love you, which is how we're tempted to read it, isn't it? Don't we still feel that same way? When we pray that prayer of confession together, And I trust that we do it on our own as well. When we sin, we go to God, God, I blew it. I sinned. I need your forgiveness so that I'll be delivered from the power and the penalty of sin. I trust that we do this. When we come to pray that prayer of confession, how do you feel in that moment? If you're anything like me, you probably feel a little bit like, dang it. Can't believe I'm here again. I can't believe I've done this again. I should have known better. I have no excuse. I mean, sometimes it goes more like, well, God, here are all my excuses. And then at the end of it, go, okay, I don't have any excuses. None of them are good enough. Whatever it is. And, and I come there and I think, God, how could you love me? How could you take, I mean, maybe you were willing to take me back the 873 times before, but this is the 874th time. And surely it's different today. And I feel bad. 
to put it, to sum it up, I feel bad. I blew it. God must not love me. Folks, is that the truth? No. It's not. Remember, Jesus' disciples came up to him and they said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times, because I'm a super forgiving guy. I mean, so that's totally how it was delivered, by the way. And Jesus said, No. And, like, if we can take this sort of blow-by-blow, blow, put it in slow-mo. Football's starting today. We're going to see lots of slow-mo. So put it in slow-mo. Here's what happens. Jesus says, no, you don't have to forgive him seven times. And he's like, oh, gosh, because that would have been really hard, Jesus. And Jesus says, 70 times seven, which means as many times as your brother asks, you are to forgive. And we throw up all sorts of roadblocks. Now we're going to have a mini sermon on forgiveness. We throw up all sorts of roadblocks to that, don't we? No, no, no. Like, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to be a fool if I forgive that many times. I'm going, you know, they'll just keep on doing it. It'll just be perceived as permission and so on. And so. See, Jesus, he doesn't say, like, oh, no, you're right. But he says, no, no, no. You're going to forgive. If you're my people, you're going to forgive every time. Because that's what I have done for you. See, if, again, if we're relying on our feelings when we come before God to forgiveness, what we will learn out of that experience of confession is probably that God doesn't like me very much because look how bad I am. But the truth is God loves me so much that he sent his son to die on my behalf for all of my sins. Did you know that all of your sins from the very first sin you committed to the very last sin you will commit before you die, they are already forgiven? Already, we have peace with God. Not because of how good we are going to be from here on out, but because of what Jesus has already done for us. Which has led us to a better place? Our feelings or the truth of Scripture? Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Which has led us better? Which is giving us a life of greater thriving? Which is more true? God's word to us or my feelings about God and myself? It's got to be Scripture. And that's what Paul gives them. He explains and he proves to them all these things you would have never figured out on your own. They're all contained in Scripture. The mystery and the message of the cross. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, Paul said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Folks, there is power in Scripture to change people's hearts and to bring them over to Jesus Christ because it is true. Because it's true. And then we find, of course, that not everyone was transformed, were they? It says, but other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Why, why did they do this? Right? What was the difference between the people who believed and the people who didn't? 
Well, we find uh, that these Jews were jealous. And, and I'm not sure that's a great English translation of the Greek term here. Uh, just like earlier in Acts, we actually had exactly the same situation where there were jealous Jews. But that word translated as jealous maybe is better translated as zealous. Right? It sounds almost, it's just a Z that's the difference, right? Z and a J. But zealous. What does it mean to be zealous for something? It means you're all in. Right? You're totally committed. These Jews were all in and totally committed on something, but it wasn't God's word. It wasn't God's word. And I think that what we're meant to understand from this passage and the rest of the context of Acts is that what they were zealous about was the way they'd always been living their life, was their tradition, was their rules. Because there's a lot that's good and comforting about tradition and rules, isn't there? And, and by the way, you will never hear me badmouth tradition and rules as bad in and of themselves. I think tradition is wonderful. I love the traditions that we have at this church. As long as they're always in obedience to Scripture. Because that's the better thing. That's the more wonderful thing. These Jews were zealous, and they were so angry that Paul was saying, you think your faith is about this, but really it's about this, that look what they do. They rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They made friends that they wouldn't otherwise make, right, that were probably contrary in their living and in their believing to what they actually valued in most ways. Right? They were so angry that they were willing to compromise on their own traditions and values so that they could paradoxically keep their traditions and values. Well, we know that you're you know, people that we shouldn't idolize. You're people that if you were in charge, bad things would happen. But we're so angry about what's happening over here that we're willing to team up with you so that we can wreck these other people because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right? And that's very pragmatic sorts of thinking, and it is not Christian thinking in any way, shape, or form. The enemy of my enemy is not necessarily my friend. Do you know what always happens in history when you team up with your enemy? See, if, if you team up with your enemy and you beat up on the guy that you don't like, right? I'm sorry, if you team up with the enemy of your friend. Okay, now I've lost everyone. I'm making this too complicated. But remember, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Okay, so if I have an enemy and they have another enemy and I team up with that other person, we're maybe don't really fit together, don't really work together, and then we, but we stomp out the, the person or the group that we both didn't like to start with. Now what happens? That it's just the two of us that are left. Now we've got another enemy, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend until my enemy is gone, and then my friend becomes my enemy. And it's all a big, we just start on over again. The enemy of my enemy is not necessarily my friend. My friends are the people who are my friends. The people I'm connected with. C.S. Lewis uh, defined friendship, the love that friends have for each other, as two people looking in the same direction, going the same way. They share something in common that binds them together. 
And I think that's pretty helpful for us. But because the Jews valued, these specific Jews valued their tradition over God's message in Scripture, they joined up with the wrong people. They started doing the sorts of things that they wouldn't normally do. They formed a mob and started a riot, which isn't a particularly good idea in, ancient, in the ancient Roman world. It's not really a good idea anywhere. Let's just put that out there. And they looked for Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. What do you think would have happened if they found Paul and Silas and brought them out to the crowd? They would have torn them apart. This is not the kind of person that these Jews would have normally have been. But because they placed their hope in something other than Scripture, they were vulnerable to becoming that person. But they didn't find Paul and Silas, so they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. Okay, that's sort of true. It's actually the response to these men that's causing trouble. But I digress. They're all defying Caesar's decrees. Now, here's the kicker, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. They were basically saying, these are a bunch of revolutionaries. They're trying to overthrow the government. They're trying to overthrow Caesar. And you know, there was a sense of truth to their charge, not because the Christians were actually trying to overthrow Caesar, but because they followed a higher authority than Caesar, Jesus Christ. The Christians used to say, Jesus is kurios. In Greek, that means Lord. And do you know who the preeminent kurios in the Roman world was? Caesar. Every time the Christians worship Jesus by saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is kurios, they were in effect saying, and Caesar is not. Not that they wanted to disobey Caesar or stage revolution, but they said our loyalty does not lie primarily with the ruler in Rome, but with the God in heaven who rose from the dead. Don't the Jews believe that Caesar isn't really king the way God is king? Of course they do. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4, maybe the most important uh, verse in all of Judaism. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Does that sound like there's room for Caesar in the Jewish pantheon? No. But just like the Jews who had Jesus crucified said, we will have no king but Caesar. See how far off they've gone because they put their trust in something other than God's word. Not only did they band up with the wrong people, not only did they deny the right people, but they actually abandoned their core they abandon their very identity in their faith. By trying to preserve their tradition, they made it all worthless. Because they weren't in obedience to Scripture. And then we have, of course, the counterexample. First, we had in Thessalonica, there's some who believed. And then in Berea, it says on arriving there, when Paul and Silas ran out of Thessalonica because it was too dangerous, they went to the Jewish synagogue in Berea. And these Berean Jews, it says, were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, which you might understand as they were more willing to search and see 
instead of just saying, this is what I believe. You know, there's a great, great joke, Baptist and a Presbyterian who are, are uh, arguing about whether it's better to be a Baptist or better to be a Presbyterian. And the Presbyterian says to the Baptist, well, why are you a Baptist anyway? And the Baptist says, well, because my father was a Baptist. And my father's father was a Baptist. And my father's father's father was a Baptist. And the Presbyterian said, well, if your father was a fool and your father's father was a fool and your father's father's father was a fool, what would that make you? And he said, a Presbyterian. So <laughs> we tell it that way to be self-deprecating. It's, you know, it's really the other way around, but that's okay. Instead of being willing to actually consider what's true, they said, what have I always believed? But the Berean Jews were different. They said, well, my beliefs need to be obedient to the truth. And if I'm going to find the truth, I'm going to find it in Scripture. And they examined, it says, they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I think sometimes we have this uh, theology of Scripture. God, I'm confused. I need to know. Let me tell you, that's, that's not the right way to study Scripture. What the Berean Jews did is they opened it up, and every day they went through. You know what the great thing is? There's no test on Scripture that's coming up next week or in a month. You know, there's like a deadline or a timeline in which, you know, if you don't have it all figured out by, by March 24th of 2023, like, that's it. It's done. It's over. We are on the lifetime reading plan for God's word. We're going to study it all of our lives long, and we will find something new. You know what the amazing thing is? People have been studying this book as Christians for 2,000 years, as Jews for four and five and 6,000 years. Well, we know this came together. The first books were written around 1500 BC. 3,500 years we've had the Bible in at least some portion or form. And we're still learning. That's how big it is. That's how wise it is. Scripture can do that for us. Now let me take you to our, uh, our worksheet here from the Westminster Longer uh, Catechism, Larger Catechism. I just want to take you to a couple of places here. First, a question 155, right at the top. It says, how is the word made effectual to salvation? How does it work? How can we know that it'll actually happen? And it says, first of all, the spirit of God makes the reading and especially the preaching of the word an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them, of making them like Jesus, and subduing them to God's will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. This is what our particular branch of Christianity has said about Scripture over the last 400, 500 years. 
But we're not alone in this. Scripture itself says this, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, completely equipped for how many good works? For some of them? For most of them? No, for every good work. In theology, we say this is the sufficiency of Scripture. It gives us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. How how can we neglect the study of Scripture? And you notice it doesn't just say sit down and read for 15 minutes or 30 minutes or six hours a day. It says the Spirit of God makes the reading and especially the preaching of the Word an effectual mean of these things. Uh, you've heard me say this before, but when the uh, Reformation started in the 16th century, uh, if you've been to a Catholic church today or an ancient church, what you'll see is that in the middle where everyone looks is the altar, where the mass happens, where the uh, bread and the wine are turned in Catholic doctrine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And then the pulpit was off to the side. And then in the, 16th, in the 16th century when the Reformation happened, they moved the altar and put the pulpit in the middle. Because they said, in order to be followers of Jesus, we have to know who he is. We have to know what he taught. And how will we know? Especially, remember back then, most people aren't literate. How will we know unless someone shares with us the word of God? And even today in our uh, Presbyterian churches, the pulpit, I know our pulpit's over here, but you notice that's where the liturgists are because it's safer to be over here, which is totally fine. But we preach from the middle. And the sermon is the main thing that we do when we get together. Not because it's my favorite thing and every pastor's favorite thing, but because of our conviction that especially the preaching of the word makes it effectual for our salvation. How is the word of God to be read? This is number 157. The holy scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them. This is a good book. You can start there. With a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God. Hey, um... I know we were just talking about how great preaching is, but the fact of the matter is, you can walk out of here saying, Ian got it wrong this morning. Probably there are some times when you should have been thinking that. I am not a perfect preacher. I try to be. I, in this life, will most likely not succeed. But when you come to the Bible, you can never walk away and say, yeah, I didn't buy it this morning, because these are the words of God. That only God can, they, we're to read the word of God with the conviction that only God can enable us to understand them. First, with desire to know. Because we don't really want to hear a lot of the things that God is telling us. He has to overcome that in our hearts. With desire to believe. Because sometimes we hear the truth and we wish it was something different. And God is the one who gives us desire to obey. Because even after we believe, we still might say, nope. Really don't want to, and I'm not. The will of God is revealed in Scripture. 
And so we need to read it with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them, just, just like the Bereans, right? Every day are these things true. With meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. Uh, basically, in some senses, he's just saying studying and taking it seriously. Hey, um, have you ever come across an idea that changed your life? I think I'm going to end on this. You ever come across an idea that changed your life? Maybe, maybe it was out of the word. Maybe it was here in church or maybe it was somewhere else. But somebody taught you something. And you said, wow, if the world is like that, then I need to know more. I have to dig in deeper to understand what's actually happening here. And that's part of what we are being encouraged to through the Westminster Catechism, through Scripture, is to say, I am coming into contact with these ideas that I've never come across before. You mean Jesus had to die? The Son of God had to become a man and die for me? Tell me more. I want to know more. I want to go deeper. I want to understand it better. What else has God done for me? What has he done for the people that I love? Uh, someone was telling me recently that uh, as they were studying, uh, they, as it was in our Hot Topics class, as a matter of fact, as we went through the Hot Topics class and we learned all of these different things, we came out with more knowledge, but we also came out with more questions than we had when we went in. And that is a surefire sign that you are learning. Because the more you learn, the bigger the world becomes. The more we realize we don't know. Do you know what uh, the word sophomore means? Yes, it's a wise fool. Two Greek words, sophos and moros. Uh, moros sounds a little like moron, doesn't it? Easy to remember. Sophomore means wise fool. Why do we, why do we say this? Right? Why do we call people in their second year of high school or college a sophomore? Because they think they know everything. Right? Oh, I'm so smart now. I'm a sophomore. You don't know what sophomore means, so that's hilarious. But get where this is going. The deeper we go, the more, we will understand, the more we will understand that there is depth. If you dive into murky water, you know, and you think, you know, maybe it's five feet deep, and you get down to five feet, you go, oh, it's deeper. You get down to 10, oh, it's deeper. And you can't see the bottom, and you realize there's just more and more and more below you. If you travel into space, you take one of Elon's rockets up into space. I guess he's not launching people into space yet. That's uh, Jeff Bezos, Amazon. He can deliver not only stuff to your house, he can deliver you to outer space. Pretty exciting. He can, I'm going to call him later and get some money for that because I think that would be an effective marketing campaign for them. But <laughs> if you travel into outer space, you get 10 miles above the surface of the earth and you realize there's more. In 15 miles. Anyone been following the James Webb Space Telescope and all the pictures that are coming out from that? So you've all heard of the Hubble Telescope, right? Hubble's taking these pictures of these things that are far, far away, and they're amazing, and they're beautiful. But the James Webb Space Telescope is much, much more powerful. And so all of these pictures that came back from Hubble, now when we're getting them on James Webb, we're like, oh, there's all this detail we never saw before we didn't know was there. That's what digging into Scripture is like. At first, you just got some binoculars, 
And then you upgrade to a big telescope. And then you send a telescope into outer space and you're seeing things you never thought you could see. And one day the good news is we will travel ourselves, not literally into outer space because heaven is not like up there somewhere. It's a different sort of place altogether. But one day we'll actually arrive there and we'll realize that all of our thoughts before had been so small. And they're only becoming bigger the longer we know Jesus, the more we are studying his word. Who responded to the message of the gospel in faith in Thessalonica and Berea? The people who responded to the message of the gospel in faith were the ones who humbly approached scripture, studied it, and obeyed it. And it protected them from betraying everything that they thought they stood for like the other Jews who started the riot and who chased Paul even out to Berea and ran him out of town. 